You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. As we wind down 2023, Merriam-Webster has crowned authentic as the word of the year. And for any actor, it's not just a term. It's a guiding light that shapes the stories we tell and resonates within the very core of who we are and who we strive to be. Famed acting teacher Sanford Meisner's timeless definition of acting, living truthfully under imaginary circumstances, captures the heart of authenticity on the stage, peeling away layers of pretense, exposing the raw truth within us and the characters we portray. It's a courageous dance with vulnerability, a commitment to unwavering honesty that we hope echoes in every performance. But this quest for authenticity isn't confined to the stage. It permeates our daily lives as well. As the poet E.E. E. Cummings put it, quote, To be nobody but myself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make me somebody else means to fight the hardest battle any human can fight and never stop fighting. Cummings is reminding us that choosing authenticity is a daily act of embracing vulnerability in a world that often prefers illusion and superficial signs of success. And the final guest of this podcast season has brought that fight to his own life and to his career as well, and even paying a price for that fight. Why, hello there, ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. I hail from Germany, Virginia, Belgium, and Virginia in that order. And uh, I'm currently based in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I was a classically trained professional actor, but now it appears as though I am a content creator slash podcaster slash influencer, which is uh, something I never predicted. Clifton is a seasoned performer on stage and screen with appearances in critically acclaimed productions on and off-Broadway, as well as a TV slate that included work for NBC, Fox, CBS, and Stars. And his journey getting there was not a sprint, but rather a marathon, encompassing years of couch-crashing, sleeping in cars, and rigorous training at NYU's graduate acting MFA program. But during and after the pandemic, Clifton's adherence to his authenticity meant that opportunities slowly dried up and his agent eventually dropped him. And in part one of our interview, you'll learn why. So I sort of went from this regional theater actor, and then I sort of was swimming in waters with Victoria Clark and Stephen Pasquale and B.B. Newworth and Joel Gray and all these kinds of people. So it was um, really kind of bizarre. And, and you know, my self-esteem was so low that I, just, I couldn't really accept that any of it was happening. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Why I'll Never Make It. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Meryl Streep once said that, quote, acting is not about being someone different. It's about finding the similarity in what is apparently different 
then finding myself in there. She is, in essence, urging us to discover the common threads in our seemingly diverse experiences. Clifton's story in and around the effects and consequences of COVID, vaccines, and theater shutdowns may be one that you relate to, or it may confuse or even anger you. But I hope that you can hear him out as I did and understand where he's coming from and the place he ultimately came to. Welcome, Clifton. It is so good to meet you. So good to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Patrick. I appreciate it. I think you're sort of uh, might be courageous for having me on in the first place, but we'll see. <laughs> well, yes, it, it it can be interesting talking with people that uh, push against the the system, so to speak, push against the status quo. Well, you know, it would be nice if we had more artists that were doing that. Um, but uh, again, I guess we can get into <laughs> get into that. <laughs> Well, both of us grew up really far away from the, the the bright lights and opportunities of New York and L.A. For myself, I grew up in the South in Alabama, but for you, you were even farther away. You grew up in Germany and bounced around for a bit because your mother was in the armed forces. Would you say that that was uh, that was difficult, or did you enjoy the the travel and variety of your childhood? Um, I definitely enjoyed the uh, the travel and variety. I mean, I had friends from you know, especially my time in Belgium. I don't really remember my time my time in um, in Germany so much because I was a kid. But you know, in Belgium, I had friends who were French and Spanish and Turkish and Greek and American and uh, you know, just from uh, different walks of life. You know, lots of military folk and I think there was a NATO headquarters that was like really <laughs> close by to where we stayed at first. But um, you know, I me, mean, my, my barber was some ginger headed uh, French guy who didn't speak a word of English. And, um, you know, I remember the um, there was a youth center and near that there was a pizza bowl where you spend like 20 francs and go to go to the movie. So I would go see stuff like Jurassic Park and um, Aladdin and Lion King. And, you know, I remember I saw the uh, Macaulay Culkin film, My Girl, and there was a uh, Turkish kid that was next to me that I'd seen sort of around. And, you know, <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen that movie, um, it's a bit of a tearjerker. And uh, there was a point where I was definitely crying. And uh, this Turkish kid just goes, you're crying? <laughs> <laughs> so, so embarrassed uh, to to be there. But uh, yeah, you know, I had a, a lot of, um, it, it was it was really great in terms of um, exposing me to just different cultures and different people. You know, I, we, Zelda Fitchhandler, who used to be the chair of uh, NYU's graduate acting program, said that she wanted actors who um, were citizens of the world, so to speak. And I, I genuinely feel that way in, in a lot of ways. It's been difficult in terms of, um, you know, maintaining relationships. You're already sort of a nomad by the time you're an adult. And so in a way, it kind of prepares you, I guess, for a career in show business in terms, you know, you're meeting new people all the time um, from all over the place. And, you know, you have to make fast friends. And, you know, especially if you're out of town, you know, they they kind of become your family, your, your company does anyway. And then you move on to the next thing. And, um, you know, so that sort of prepared me. But it's, it's certainly is uh, hell in retrospect in terms of uh, knowing how to maintain healthy relationships. So that uh, <laughs> that 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 can be a, a bit of a barrier sometimes. I bet, I bet. And 
you know, for myself, getting into theater and performing, that started uh, relatively early, around the third grade for myself, getting into choirs and things like that. But for you, it really wasn't until high school that you discovered drama because there was a certain girl in drama class that you wanted to follow. (laughs) Yeah, so I always joke that that's how straight guys always end up in theater. They're they're just, they're chasing some girl around. But uh, yeah, I never... You know, I was going to be an illustrator at first. I mean, I was always sort of an artsy fartsy kid. Um, I mean, by the time I was ten, you know, I remember, you know, I, I was, I did a like a poetry recital of, you know, some poem about, you know, me being black. I forgot what it was, but uh, you know, but I was writing poetry and short fiction. But mainly, I was um, inspired by cartoons like like or cartoonists like Bill Watterson uh, of Calvin and Hobbes. I read a lot of comic books, so I was really into X Men. So you know, I thought maybe I would be a comic book illustrator or cartoonist or something in, in that in that regard. But I was also dabbling, dabbling in music and I was in band for a bit, um, uh, a little uh, burgeoning uh, trombone player. And uh, there was nothing about acting or drama anywhere on my radar. And I think, you know, just one day I was in art class and, you know, I was also heavily influenced by the Gary Larson cartoon, The Far Side. And I, I just had this really stupid, quick drawing of there was someone in a boxing room who had just punched a, a hole through another egg. And I just, you know, the caption I put was egg beater, you know, and I'm just some kid in high school, you know, <laughs> and uh, teacher kind of came by and was like, you should be on TV. Now, I don't know to this day how the the drawing some kid uh, uh, made would uh, tell this lady that uh, I needed to be on TV for some reason. But even by, by that point, um, you know, I would love watching uh, sitcoms like The Fresh Prince or Martin or sketch comedy shows like SNL or all that on Nickelodeon. And um, I thought that, you know, what a, what an interesting job that would be to be a part of one of those shows. But again, I mean, nobody in my family was an actor or an artist in any capacity. And, uh, you know, nobody was really doing that. And as you were traveling around, as you were going to these different places, was there a lot of theater? Was that even something that was no. really possible? No, I mean, it just was never in... And, uh, you know, our, our, my purview at all. Um, and, but, you know, ultimately I got accepted into the Savannah College of Art and Design for reasons I still don't know. And then, um, but it was just cheaper to go to VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, um, in, which was in state. And, you know, I somehow convinced them to let me into their program. And um, from there, yeah, I would say the rest is history. And I was always kind of practical in a way too, because, you know, I, I wish that I was kind of like you, where I was one of those kids who saw like, uh, you know, some production of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat when I was five. And I just said, oh, my God, I have to do this the rest of my life. You know, my life would have been easier, actually, if I was that kind of that kind of kid. But, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really choose acting. I think it really chose me and I kind of fell into it and uh, I kept getting cast in shows and um, to the point where they had to stop casting me in my undergrad be- to give other people a chance. <laughs> and then I just started getting work um, in out in community theater. And then I ended up nailing my first professional audition in Richmond and working in D.C. And then, um, you know, I went to grad school and things kind of just took off. It's just been yeah. very weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You furthered your training at the NYU's graduate acting program at the Tisch School of the Arts. And, and it was during that time that you actually were, were getting your equity card through the Equity Membership Candidate Program, or EMC as they call it. Yeah, I was very, I was very uh, happy about that. And, you know, sort of the pattern in my, in my entire career, really. People, I think people f- sort of think that, uh, or they might be mistaken in thinking that I was sort of handed things or that I got really lucky. I mean, of course, luck is always a component of any career, but, um, you know, I mean, I also graduated in the recession. Uh, so, you know, I, I just, 
I've always sort of been, I've gotten used to this uh, working my way up from, if not quite the bottom, then near the bottom and uh, rising up to the upper echelons of whatever market I happen to be in. So, um, you know, I never booked some show when it was handed my equity card. I had to do lots of shows to get my equity card. And uh, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's sort of been the, pr the progression of um, of my career. Yeah, for myself, it was one of those where I went to Disney World knowing that I would get my equity card through it, and, and th there it was. So I never had to go through any kind of points or membership candidacy program. Yeah, it certainly seems like that for you from your, your childhood and bouncing around and the different experiences that you had, plus the, the drive and push that you had once you discovered acting, that that has served you well as far as going and reaching the different mile markers throughout your career. Well, I don't know if I would call it drive, you know, um, it's one of the things that I've struggled with and, and it's kind of funny, I've always kind of been ruthlessly pragmatic in a way. Um, if you look at my very first, um, if anyone wants to dig yeah, there, I did a show called the day the Bronx died my freshman year of college. It was like the second play I'd ever done. And my first real dramatic role, because up to that point, I'd always viewed myself as a class clown. And, uh, you know, I was, I was voted most wittiest by my high school class and I accepted the award in, in, a, in a pair of aluminum colored hammer pants. So that kind of gives you an idea <laughs> of my self-assessment at the time. And so I did this play and it was like the first kind, the first time that um, I was like, oh wait, I actually, you know, really can act. And I had other people telling me, you know, hey, you've, you've really got something going there. At the, I wrote in my bio, it was just so straightforward. It was like, you know, Clifton hopes to hone his skills in the theater and then move on to a career in television and film. Like there were never any sort of grand aspirations. It was just really like kind of nuts and bolts. And that's, it, that's ironically what I ended up doing. Um, so, you know, I never had this hunger to be famous. Um, I never had great ambition to be super successful, um, honestly. And, um, all I knew was that, you know, being in an office was not really for me and that, um, you know, I just I couldn't think of anything else that I really wanted to do. You know, I, I really sort of got gained confidence with my, my late grandmother when, uh, you know, because she's, she's like the one person who was like, what you want to be it? You want to do what you want to be an actor? Do you have a plan B? What if it doesn't work out? Like, what do you what do you like? What are you doing? And then she came and saw me like in my first professional show, which was uh, Where's Charlie? at the uh, Barksdale Theater in Richmond. And after the show, you know, and she had, she'd never seen me on stage before. And she just goes, never mind, baby, you go on and you be an actor. You don't, <laughs> but don't, but don't be like that. Den don't be like that Will Smith. He's a clown. You need to be like Denzel. You need to be like Denzel. <sighs> you know, so like sort of getting her, her, her blessing was, uh, was great. But, you know, it, it took me a really long time to even be comfortable calling myself an actor. And um, I think I was just driven mainly by, um, like if I'm really, really super busy and I have like tasks ahead of me, um, you know, that that's when I'm at my happiest. And it just so happens, I think, that I have a certain a certain temperament, a certain look, um, a certain voice and certain sort of aptitudes and proclivities that really lend um, that really lend themselves to a performing arts career. And then over time, I actually began to enjoy myself doing the work. But this is like well into adulthood. And um, then that's, of course, when everything began to shut down and, uh, you know, the other things happened. So that's sort of the the irony of it. But I don't know if I call it drive other than other than I was sort of coasting on momentum. And then I found later on in my career that whenever I did want something, 
um, if I put energy toward it, then it would actually happen. So as much control as we feel we don't have oftentimes over our careers and our destinies, um, you know, I, I found that when I said, you know, I want a great bi-coastal agent and a powerful manager, then that actually happened. Or I said, I want to book a musical, then two weeks later, I get the Scottsboro Boys in California. Um, you know, I say, I want to become a stronger singer. Once I do that, that's when I begin to break out in, in New York. And I say, I want to study my on-camera technique. I do that for a year, and then I get three guest stars um, after having zero guest stars uh, for years. So there is some drive in that and, and that I, I pick and choose kind of things that that I'm inspired to move toward at a given time. And then they kind of ended up working out, but not after, you know, serious um, focused energy in that direction. I mean, there's certainly something to be said for really just putting it out there. I remember there was one time where just, I guess it was probably just more for myself, but I, I started to, back when Tumblr was a thing, I was posting on there. <laughs> I, I was doing all my bucket list shows and roles, and I was just like, you know, every few days I would write about this show and this role that I wanted to do. And one of them was Man of the Mancha doing Don Quixote. And nice. within a year, I got that. And so sometimes it can be just a matter of putting it out there, letting it be known. I'm not saying anyone read that Tumblr, but just the sheer fact that I put it out there and put it down onto, onto paper or onto screen, then that can give us a way or at least a focus, a goal to aim toward rather than just, I want to be on Broadway or I want to be you know right. famous, which can be so nebulous. Gosh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Man of La Mancha. I haven't heard that uh, soundtrack in a long time. That was one of my original inspirations was listening to the Richard Kiley mm -hmm. um, recording. And just, uh, you know, that really, I don't know if I'd say maybe it's an underrated um, um, score. I mean, but, you know, I think of songs like Dulcinea, for instance, just this gorgeous, like lyrical ballad. And I'm like, how come more people don't do this song? You know? Yeah, but that's another podcast entirely. Right. Yeah. 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 I have Dulcinea in my book. So <laughs> since I better, I've done you better show. have it in your book. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, this gets us into story number one. And after experiencing a career breakthrough in 2017 with plays that goes wrong on Broadway, Assassins at City Center Encores, you went on to, as you mentioned, get these guest starring roles in television. But, you know, like all actors, you know, your career path was interrupted by the pandemic. We were just completely shut off from it. But as TV, theater, work slowly began to come back, your career was instead cut short because you refused to get vaccinated against COVID. And, and to this day, you, you stuck by that decision. From the onset, were you against getting it from the very beginning or did your aversion grow over time? Well, no. And, you know, and this, this is the strange thing for me. You know, uh, I'm, I'm often smeared now as some sort of far-right anti-vaxxer or whatever uh, online. And, you know, my attitude, I think, was like most people's attitudes toward vaccines, which was just sort of benign and they're a, a, a part of life. And, um, you know, you, you take them when they're offered or, or not. I never had any strong opinion um, either way. Um, my thing was that um, I ended up, you know, I caught... Um, the virus and recovered in, in late December of 2020 um, before the vaccines were really widely available. And um, for me, you know, I, I just said, I'm going to wait and see um, how it all shakes out. And um, I, I'm not in a high risk category. And there was already data coming out. And we already understood through just basic epidemiology that uh, the immunity conferred from prior infection is often very strong and long lasting. And um, so I, I didn't feel any huge compulsion to run out and get these. 
Um, I also knew that beforehand that we've never really been able to successfully vaccinate against any particular, uh, any any other kind of corona, uh, coronavirus. So the idea that we might have to sit around and wait until we got one, um, you know, it, it, it kind of struck me, you know, I was concerned a little bit. But um, over time, once these became mandated, I, I noticed that there was a complete um, negligence in acknowledging people who'd already been infected by the by the disease. I thought there was a very strange omission or refusal to acknowledge that uh, people might actually have some kind of um, um, issue with taking a which is which is essentially a new product. And um, I just think that you know neither your employer or your union or the government really. Um, should be able to dictate um, whether or not you inject something into yourselves. And there's, you know, it's a weird kind of precedent to set. And then the culture which sprang up around whether or not um, part of it was like the, the partisan nonsense, which, I, you know, I, like we were kind of discussing beforehand, I find very, very tiresome. Um, there was a culture of what I call casual cruelty that um, sprang up around these. And part of it is, you know, I, I understand people were very, very afraid, which is another thing I want to get into, which is that, you know, while everyone else was focusing on Donald Trump's first impeachment. You know, he he still had a few more in the chamber um, after that. You know, I was stocking up on food and supplies. Uh, the the commentators I was watching were were saying like, there's something that's happening in China, and now it's sweeping through the Middle East. And now, oh my, look at what what's happening in Spain and Italy, France. They're shutting down. And uh, you know, before the World Health Organization had declared that it was a, a pandemic, before they declared there was even human to human transmission, I was already talking to my therapist. Very New York way to start a sentence. <laughs> I was talking to my therapist in, in January of 2020, you know, mask on, um, you know, in her office. I'm not touching elevator buttons. I'm wiping down my food and my, my, my groceries, my mail, my keys. I'm sure my roommate at the time, hey, Neville, thought that I was insane because I'm, I'm you know, walking around our apartment uh, obsessively sanitizing any knob and handle or, or surface that I can find in the apartment. So I took this all very, very seriously initially. And, uh, and then my mind changed over time. But once I began to see the coercive measures put into place, um, the social pressures put into place, um, and the sort of the deeper divisions that were being put into place um, over whether or not people were, were to take this, I became very, very disturbed. And I also became, and, I, and I'm, I think one of the only people that I, I saw that was, you know, I think Chad Kimball, maybe who, who received a lot a firestorm of, um, of outrage for um, not allowing uh, his governor to uh, bar him singing from church, you know, I kind of weighed in and saying, hey, you know, he's, He's talking about government overreach. And, um, you know, then I got dragged as well. And again, I, you know, I understand why people were afraid, but I also think that uh, we we were not really taking a more comprehensive look at how we responded to this. And I've been very, very vocal about that. And uh, as a consequence, again, my refusal to take um, this particular drug, and um, I don't regret not taking it um, from a personal health perspective, but uh, I think it's done a lot of, I think it's done a lot of damage. Um, to the industry, not, not just economically, as we can see, but uh, reputational reputationally as well. And it's, I think it's created a lot of, a lot of toxicity and problems that are going to take, it's going to take a long time to wipe that stain away. But, you know, to answer your question more directly, yeah. So I went from, um, it seemed I had no reason to assume that my upward trajectory would have, uh, would have stopped, but uh, I decided not to take this one particular drug. And um, that kind of ended everything. It's really, um, turned a lot of things upside down, to say the very least. You mentioned Chad Kimball, Laura Osnes. She's one of the more recent examples of that as well, of, of people coming against her for the, the stand that she chose to take. And while you chose not to be vaccinated as well as some others, 
there were certainly other actors around you, myself included, who did get the vaccine. Did did you disagree with their choice of getting it? No, you know, and and that's the thing, you know. My there are people out there who, um, and maybe I'll get into this a little bit later because there's extremes on both sides of this issue. One who thinks that the that the uh, the virus is going to kill everybody, but they're mirrored on the other side of people who think that the vaccines are going to kill everybody. Um, my, you know, I've never made any sort of public statements, unlike other uh, actors and celebrities, um, urging people to get the um, the shots. I have always maintained that it should be up to someone's personal choice. If you are someone who who feels they are vulnerable, um, then of course, uh, then of course, take it. You know, I, I really don't have any sort of strong opinion about that. You know, you are you are in the best position to know what's best for your health purposes. You know what I mean? It's not my place to dictate whether or not. Now, I have my my concerns about um, about risks and safety, but again, I will never. Um, recommend for or against um, anyone to take the vaccines. And I have friends who, you know, have, have gotten them and, and, you know, we're still buddies. I don't care about the, uh, about that, that particular decision. Although I will say there are people that I, I don't talk to anymore because, uh, you know, they get to keep their careers and they, they, they talk to me in private about how they, they disagree with it all, but they either get fake cards or they um, go on, to get along in public, like everything is hunky dory, but no, you know, it's just, it's, it should be a choice and, um, whether or not you, you got it. I mean, I'm down in Atlanta and it really isn't a big deal for most people down here. Um, the way that it is in, uh, in New York. Yeah. It's interesting how, what should have been a, a, a medical issue that certainly came up that could have been something that the country galvanized behind to try to, what's the best way? How do we do? Instead, it became this partisan divide. It became, if you lived in the North, you thought one way. If you lived in the South, you thought if you were Democratic, you were, you know, there were all these dividing lines that determined how you had to think about it. And I remember whenever just getting COVID meant something against you, like, oh, oh right. you, you've done something wrong because you got the disease. Which is absurd. It's absurd. You know, it would have to apply to any communicable disease from here on out. You know, I mean, people need to realize that, that the sort of culture of shame that kind of arose around this, I mean, it's completely, A, it's just out of proportion to the actual lethality of the virus, empirically speaking. But um, the, the notion that we, and I began to become very disturbed by this. I mean, I do have, um, you know, I have a friend who who lost a couple of family members to the virus. And, um, and her vitriol toward one of her siblings about, um, you know, well, he's irresponsible and he goes out and he's reckless and he does this and he does that. And I, I said, you know, it's kind of, to me, it's a bit dangerous on a societal and a cultural level to begin to blame other people or, you know, refer to them as murderers for, for the transmission of, of viruses, especially with a highly transmissible, transmissible respiratory virus, which, um, you know, despite our best efforts or the government's best efforts, I should say. So to demonize other people for some idea of them spreading it or for people to feel as if they failed in some way for catching it is completely, it's not, it's not a rational thing. It's just not a, it's just not a logical way of looking at the world. And again, you know, that can, you see now they're talking about the, uh, you know, the, the, the tridemic or the triple pandemic. And um, are we going to, how can we as a society function if we're always going to live in this, this perpetual state of fear of, um, of airborne, airborne pathogens? I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, it's not that you need to to diminish the risks or or dismiss any of the risks, 
Um, you need to take care of yourself and protect yourself the best way that you know how. But um, life has to go on and we have to function as a society and we have to move beyond fear and paranoia and, and move on to more um, productive uh, pursuits because, you know, and maybe I'll get into this later, but I, do re I really do think that um, we're facing some serious challenges up ahead as a society and as a culture. And uh, we need to focus more on those and less on, on shaming and blaming. While this episode is only the first half of my interview with Clifton, subscribers to Why I'll Never Make It already have the full interview in their feeds. To join those who are supporting this podcast and helping produce future episodes, go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. Another benefit besides access to full episodes and bonus content is not having to listen to any ads either. Well, with regards to your own public decision to not be vaccinated, do you see that as possibly influencing others to not be vaccinated? Um, probably. I mean, you know, it's tough to say. You know, I always I had a teacher who once told me I could use some more arrogance. So whenever people look at me and they say, oh, you know, you've got this big following and, you know, I just think of myself as I'm just some a-hole with a phone and some opinions. Um, so. You know, it, certainly some people may have, you know, seen me and decided that they were going to um, going to or, or not going to get the shots. But I don't know. I mean, maybe I project my own sort of uh, independence on that. I don't see why what someone else what someone else does um, would impact what I do in that way. But at the same time, um, you know, that's why I've also tried to st stay away from telling people whether or not they should or shouldn't get it. Um, cause again, it's not really, it's not really my place to do so. Now, one could argue that my raising, uh, concerns about safety and risks and adverse events and injuries and that sort of a thing might be discouraging other people. But, um, you know, I think I would counter that by saying that, uh, people need to know what sort, what they're really getting into when you're talking about something that, something that they're injecting into themselves. And I think it's completely fair, uh, regardless of whatever, um, medication that you're taking that we have a full awareness of the uh, the benefits and the risks and um, and again it should be made voluntary in my opinion well as acting jobs started coming back toward the end of 2020 into 2021 mostly on camera at that point the vaccination requirements started to become pretty uniform across the board uh, you know affecting all of us the same but at what point did these broad requirements start to feel personal against you and your career i wouldn't say that the, it felt personal in any meaningful sense but you know there was a point where um maybe mid 2021 where i was starting to get availability checks and you know and and uh you know maybe offers where the casting office would would ask if i had gotten or whether i was planning on on getting uh, the shots or not and even to this day um you know there again the this strange generalized um, resentment and anger toward people who who decided not to get the vaccine including from the president of the united states um you know i was so stressed out because the atmosphere was just so so hyper negative and you know even the job i was working there was a point where you know it was like you know if you showed proof of um the vaccine then 
you can work without your mask. Everyone else has to be, you know, be masked up, which is a weird sort of psychological and social pressure, you know, as well. So there were all these sort of coercive factors um, on a small and a large scale. And these companies were just coming through and saying and, and asking this this big question, which it became clear that the question, if we're being honest, became less about it's less of a scientific question, right? It's more of a moral question. It's are you a good person? Are you as good a person as I am? Are you as smart and as caring, as kind, as compassionate as I am? Do you care about saving lives in the way that I do? It, it moved past being a scientific question a long, long time ago or a question of medical necessity. But I, I began to see the writing on the wall uh, and, um, and even, you know, Actors' Equity, they sent out this survey, um, which really left no room for any kind of debate or any sort of um, idea that some of their members would be a little wary for whatever reason, right, um, uh, on taking on these new products. And um, I got, you know, I, what, what was I going to do? I mean, my manager, who, bless her, former manager, um, she never really pushed me. She was never aggressive. But, you know, she would tell me stories about actors losing out on life-changing jobs in television because they decided they didn't, you know, it wasn't the right decision for them. And over time, you know, like, what use am I to her? I can't, she can't submit me for anything. I can't work. Um, so I'm not making her any money. So of course they're going to, you know, drop to the wayside. And, you know, it just sort of happened over time where I just, uh, you know, I, I didn't see that it was necessarily personal, but, um, you know, just a product again, as I was saying before of hysteria and fear, although it did get kind of personal at one point and I'll name names where I got into it on Twitter with Stephen Pasquale, who, you know, an actor who I'd worked with on um, several occasions and um, whom I'd actually defended uh, from allegations of him being a bit of an a-hole and a douchebag. Um, you know, we'd never had any issues. I'd enjoyed working with him. I respect him, uh, his talent and, and ability in his career. But, you know, he made some tweet about how people who are unvaccinated, you know, should be basically had their, li their lives made more difficult in any, any number of ways. And this kind of goes back into, um, calls back to what you were saying, Patrick, about the partisanship of the nature of the, of the thing, because it didn't, it didn't cut neatly across partisan lines. For instance, um, you know, black Americans vote over 90% Democrat, and yet they are the least vaccinated demographic. And so at a time where we're going, going on and on about uh, anti-racism and how we want more diverse audiences with these mandates and requirements, we're actually excluding at a disproportionate rate the very kind of people that we want in here. Um, Latino is our second least vaccinated demographic, by the way. And um, so I just pointed out to Stephen, like, you know, you're creating a society in this way in which... Um, people like myself are being uh, disproportionately harmed by these kinds of policies or this kind of attitude. And, you know, he deleted the original tweet, but then he came back with something about like, well, you know, people like me who want to end the pandemic um, are, you know, and, and again, more of this sort of moral grandstanding about taking care of others. And, and then he said, you know, he exhorted me to, to read the data. And I'm thinking to myself, well, yes, Stephen, I am reading the data. That's why I understand who's most vulnerable who is you know highest at risk and who should be protected and 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 you know like levels of asymptomatic risk and comparing different countries and different outcomes and and how they were handling things versus how we were handling things you know it's so like if you were reading the data then you would understand why what you just tweeted originally is really is nonsensical um but you know i know that his attitude um just knowing, you know, having spent decades in, in the industry, just knowing how groupthink works and the sort of ideological conformity that's that's demanded of you in order to maintain a professional career. Um, you know, I just I, I 
I knew it wasn't going to make that, that much of a difference. But uh, so that was the only time it really became personal. But um, in a broader sense, you know, to have to wake up every day and to see an entire society tell you that you should be a second class citizen, that you don't deserve to work, that you should be disowned from your family, um, these kinds of things. It changes your view on things a lot, uh, at the very least. Yeah, because I I remember seeing the efforts of people like Andrew Lloyd Webber or countries like South Korea as they were pushing to stay open, keep theater alive during that time. And I was struck by the U.S. in contrast and its shutdown efforts. And and, and I was even left wondering, and I, I would mention this from time to time, about a profession that's so built on creative, out-of-the-box thinking that they couldn't come up with a better option to keep theater alive rather than just shutting down completely. Well, it wasn't only that, Patrick, and and be prepared for another 10-minute rant on this. But, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, a lot of artists, they call themselves activists, and they, they, they paint themselves as revolutionaries who are pushing back against the status quo. And yet, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're anti-authority, apparently, and um, especially at the time when the um, pandemic erupted, we were, you know, collectively um, resisting against uh, the onset of a fascist government, which, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with, but let's just sort of, that's where the mindset of everybody, you know, was kind of at, a lot of people, I should say. And yet, once the state came along, and, you know, a doofus like Bill de Blasio and a scumbag like Andrew Cuomo um, will come along and, and tell you that you're not essential. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, this is Broadway in New York City. You know, people come from all over the world to work here. People come from all over the world to see the work that we do on Broadway. You know, there is so much that um, it's so much a part of the cultural identity of the city. Um, it's a big economic driver in the city. And, you know, again, another frustration is that people really don't understand what an economy is and how it's and how it's interconnected and how, if you know, you can't just kind of, you know, take one piece out of it or shut parts of it down and expect not to see any consequences down the line. But I said, you know, Broadway is essential. And yet as soon as these um, bureaucrats and administrators told them that they're not essential, all the artists fell in line and they agreed with that. And, you know, again, I, I, I have sympathy in the extent to the extent that, you know, we were all kind of afraid at first and we didn't know quite what was going on. Um, but over time, I mean, there were people. This is why, you know, there's a woman named Emily Oster who put out an article in The Atlantic um, some months ago and she got excoriated because she was talking about, um, you know, pandemic amnesty and um, and sort of finding a way to um, forgive each other for the things that we said and did because there was so much that we didn't know then. And no, there was a lot that we knew back then um, about the the various risks and how to best navigate um, this particular virus. But um, there is such a narrow range of opinion that's even allowed to be discussed, um, not just within our industry, but in various sectors of society that this knowledge was kept from people. And so, you know, and I was trying to tell people like, you know, I, I think we're doing, we risk doing real damage to theater going culture, to the theater going habit if we stay shut down, uh, you know, for, for all these periods of time. And uh, I could hear people's eyes like glazing over as I was saying this thing. But, um, you know, I just was stunned by how, you know, Broadway just sat back and said that we are less essential than liquor stores. And, um, you know, I mean, this is, I, I remember when I watched, you know, Broadway, the golden age, that um, that wonderful documentary from years and years ago, or when I, I first took my uh, a class by a wonderful man named Mark Jacoby. It was a singing for actors class. 
And that's where I discovered, you know, Cole Porter and the, and the Gershwins and Rodgers and Hart and Rodgers and Hammerstein and Man of La Mancha, you know, all these wonderful, wonderful musicals and, and Judy Garland and, and, you know, it had this huge impact on my life and, and, and upbringing and this culture of, you know, the, the show must go on and, and we're, we're strong, gritty, tough, um, New York performers and all the old acting books talk about the, the importance of taking care of your health and how you have a duty and obligation to serve, uh, to serve your public, especially during times where they're going to be embattled and, um, and, and, and struggling. And for me to see so many people just completely resign themselves to being told that they're not essential, um, even though, you know, I mean, it's the arts in New York, one of the artistic meccas in the universe. Uh, we, 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 we most certainly are, but I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, it, the, I think my, my big beef is just how can we have allowed the, the state, the government, these officials who don't care about art, who don't care about the arts at all, to have our lives and livelihoods wrested away from us? And what made it worse for me is that once I left New York, and I'm working, you know, these long shifts alongside people who are just trying to better their lives and who, you know, they're working with, you know, achy backs and they have kids at home and, and, you know, they have, they're out of baby formula that, you know, their, their, their rent is due. They're trying to figure out how to make their car notes. Um, these people are, are, are working, you know, what working their butts off, trying, trying to keep their lives afloat. And you have business owners who are, you know, fighting their government tooth and nail to keep their businesses open. But meanwhile, Broadway, these pretentious people on Broadway um, and who do theater are sitting back demanding the government pay them not to work and then sneering at anybody who, uh, who wanted to work. And now they're wondering why people aren't coming to their shows and why so many shows are closing. I've often thought as this as the pandemic wore on and as we started to come out of it, that the medical effects will be with us for a bit, but I think the, the financial and societal implications will certainly stick with us far longer. And so I'm curious for you, as things come back to whatever normal is going to be for us, do you see yourself getting back into acting again? I don't know, Patrick, you know, I wrestle with this question every day because I mean, look, you know, to be honest with you, the last few years have been very, very difficult. I don't want to wallow in self-pity. I mean, obviously, I made my choices. And I'm sure there are plenty of people listening who say, well, you live with the consequences of your choices. And that's fine. I do. But, you know, there's, I don't really feel at home, um, you know, doing much of any, anything else. Um, you know, I did my first play when I was 16. And um, this all started when I was 37. So this has been my entire life um, doing this, and I think I'm really good at it. And at a time where the industry has become uh, obsessed with with diversity, you know, I I feel as though I'm exactly the kind of artist the industry claims to want. I've succeeded in various genres, from Shakespearean tragedy to musical comedy to everything in between, uh, stage and screen. And um, you know, I have the training pedigree in the background. I have the the chops. You know, and I was reaching a point where, again, and I don't like talking about myself that much, but I reached a point where I'm like, yeah, I'm sitting here like, you know, doing assassins and shaking hands with Stephen Sondheim, who said some of the nicest things anyone has ever said to me, at which point I said, no one else can tell me shit. Um, and now to see the entire industry turn its back and um, say that people like me need to become uh, second-class citizens or be consigned to lives of penury and, and immiseration because of a, a very, in my view, a very logical medical decision, which has no impact on you. It's really difficult for me to, to trust and to forgive and to forget the way that people behaved. 
and to you know and to see how they went back on many of their stated principles in in terms of holding up you know what i call the covidian cultism and um there you know it's just it's not a um until people begin to apologize you know the unions come you know come out and say and apologize if you're an agent or a manager and you dropped clients you know take them back on apologize to them you were afraid you know we 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 you know the science changed so to speak um the broadway league needs to apply i mean there needs to be a movement towards um some kind of reconciliation and some kind of um humility um because there's a there's been a lot of people who've been alienated by this and generations of people by the way i get messages i mean i've got dozens and dozens of messages from people via uh, private message or via um you know via twitter who said you know i used to come and see broadway shows you know you know two or three shows a year i'd bring my family with me we'd spend so much money on, on these shows and and, and uh, you know the surrounding entertainment uh, environment um but we're not going to go anymore because of how they reacted uh, to the virus um, you have older people, people who are my age, who are now driving trucks for a living, who have been lifers, who, you know, the kind of folks that you would want to have, you know, in your ensemble or on your team who, you know, just love what they do and want to be a part of the business. And, uh, but what's most heartbreaking to me is that there are young people and I have parents tell them, uh, tell me about their kids or they reach out, those kids reach out to me themselves where they have a youngster who's been training since they were three or four years old to be on stage or they, or to be in the ballet or something. And now they can't go into their favorite conservatories or now they're not even allowed to audition for shows and, and to, and to get their feet wet and to break themselves into the business that they that they so love because of what's what's happened and they're they're aimless now um they feel excluded and and they are um dejected and again you have to also understand is that you know when videos surface such as uh, that of patty lapone um uh you know excoriating someone for not wearing a mask people see that and they see it as as um, as bullying and as um, a bit of hysteria. And so, again, the end result is that after alienating all these people, um, people aren't coming to see shows. And the last one I want to make about that, um, and I know the original question was about whether or not I, I want to come back, but you know, but here's the thing, because you know, I like to watch various YouTubers and live streamers and podcasters, and I noticed something. You know. Um, People are still going to NBA games or they're going to NFL games. They're going to see the UFC and mixed martial arts. You know, you have YouTubers like Logan Paul, for God's sakes, who's selling out arenas, doing pay-per-views. Um, people are watching live streamers and, and sending 50, 100, $200 donations, um, you know, to, to their favorite content creators. So the point is that people are spending money, but they're not spending it in New York. They're not spending it on Broadway. And until I see a shift in the industry where people acknowledge that and and they begin course correcting and self and, and sort of evaluating themselves. I don't see any point in coming back because a there's still that that specter lingering of the sort of um, opprobrium uh, directed toward people like me for their medical decisions. But also there's something that I see, which is a a, a an ignorance in terms of um, recognizing what the problems are and turning the ship around. So you know, and I guess lastly, I would say that why would I want to work with people who just allowed their industry to be taken away from them like that? You know, there were normal people around the country, barbers, salon owners, restaurant owners, who really, really fought hard to keep their livelihoods afloat. Where were the artists doing that? And the people that I've seen 
that have been defending artists over the past couple of years or the arts have not been artists. It's been, you know, like scientists and and people from other political ideologies. It hasn't been the artists themselves. And that's been very frustrating to watch as well. I mean, I can go on and on about this, as you guys, you can probably imagine. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I can tell your passion, which is why I wanted to have you on. I wanted to hear this side. You know, as I said, I'm one of the people who was vaccinated, who did follow as many of the protocols as I could. But I also saw the encroachment and was, was bothered by it and was wondering what society going to become, not just for the arts, but what society in general going to become after this. I think one of the reasons that I began to become very perturbed by what was going on, and again, this is as, this is as somebody who, like I said before, was uh, very much uh, in the COVIDian um, cult, I'm going to say, at, at the beginning. And the thing is, while I understand from a simplistic perspective in terms of compassion, oh, we're doing everything we can to take care of others, um, what we were being asked to do over an extended period of time, I felt, was was antithetical to anything that made life worth living. You know, we, we're allowing these bureaucrats to tell us, you know, whether or not we can see our families, for instance. Um, we're allowing people to tell us that we need to cover up our faces and that, you know, I mean, one of the biggest things for me was this, the controversy which up, which, uh, which erupted over whether or not to put face masks on children. And, um, you know, I, as someone who has, you know, back waiting tables now when I, you know, trying to interact with, with children who don't really know much about the world and about human communication, you know, it, it's really difficult for them to understand what's going on and learn, you know, pick up on social cues and emotional learning, these kinds of things. Um, you, you know, th so there's just other knock on effects that I felt like we just weren't even allowed to talk about. But, and for me, it goes kind of beyond just the, just the pandemic. I think there's something um, even bigger at play. And, you know, that's my sort of feeling that I've been working with this theory that, Right now, it's the artist's job. We the stakes are very high, and that we need to be pushing for um, for unification and and coming together, and for putting an end to division. Uh, because you know it's going to sound hyperbolic, but I really feel like you know the very soul of of the culture of the society of the nation even is at stake. Because what's happening is that the artists right now are very very much steeped in one way of viewing the world. And they're stampeding in one direction, forcing the rest of the public to kind of go in the other direction. And um, it's causing more and more, um, more and more division. And part of that, you, you see that gulf in understanding of people who are saying, okay, well, yeah, you know, the virus is dangerous, but, you know, we also have these other things to consider versus people who are saying that it's the apocalypse and we have to do everything we can to shut it down. And, and um, huh, you know, it's just, it's, I did a podcast in like January 2020, and I remember the uh, people in the room with me being kind of surprised. I said, you know, in the future, if there is a United States of America, and um, that was before all the unrest of 2020 and the divisions that happened, that crept up during the, um, the pandemic. And, you know, I really, I really fear that artists are losing touch, the performing arts are losing touch, our various arts institutions are losing touch with the general public. And that's one of the reasons they're not coming to our shows. And until we recognize that, um, it's going to get even worse and worse. You had mentioned about other people wanting to hear some some apology from them for the things they've said to you or, or things that they've held against you. As you look back on your own journey the past couple of years, do you see anything that you would need to apologize for? Um, I think at times I've probably been, um, I mean, maybe too strident in terms of how I have 
I mean, I don't know. You know, I think I could be accused of um, maybe putting forth uh, some, I don't want to call them theories or ideas that didn't really pan out and didn't really uh, only added to the noise at the time. But at the same time, it's tough for me to think in, in that way because, you know, someone might argue that, for instance, if I go back and, and what you said on, uh, you know, if someone might have been discouraged from taking um, the vaccine based on what they've seen me say or whatever, and then they end, that person ends up dying, yeah, you know, as a result of the virus. For me, I've always said that, uh, you know, I've always advocated for, well, look, we know that, and we knew since 2020, that uh, 70% of people who were hospitalized um, for the virus were overweight. And so, again, we have a culture right now that's so politically correct that uh, I, I would say that. I mean, I made this one joke tweet about, um, ironic tweet that it's like, you know, I think we should mandate um, a, a body mass index of under 25 uh, in order to to stop the spread of severe COVID or something like that. And, uh, you know, and I said that, you know, I, I wouldn't do that because the government shouldn't be able to tell you what to do with your body. But people came back at me and they said, just just admit that you want fat people to die, that you hate fat people. Stop fat shaming. And I'm like, no, literally, it's the opposite. You know, if we if we're in the deadliest pandemic in a century and we know that nearly three quarters of the people who are being hospitalized um, suffer from this condition, um, me encouraging uh, people to work on that condition uh, how was that encouraging, um, people to die? So my, my, my approach from the beginning has been, you know, it's a multi-pronged, uh, approach and we should take a, a, we have a variety of tools at our disposal to, to combat this thing. So if you find that the shots aren't for you, then there's other ways to maintain your health and protect yourself. And uh, we should be exploring those options as well. So, you know, I, obviously I'm going to say that I, I can't find much to apologize for. We all are the heroes of our own story. And I'm, and I, highly suspect that people that I want uh, to apologize to me would say to themselves as well, um, well, you know, at the time, the science said this, and the CDC said that, although they, you know, people's selective listening to the CDC has been, uh, is, is well known at this point. Um, so, you know, really, no, <laughs> you know, I, I think I've been right from just about the very beginning. And um, I think the people that have, um, told me that uh, I need to be denied uh, medical care or that I should uh, starve or be a second-class citizen um, because I decided not to take a particular medical product um, are the ones who should be uh, apologizing to me. That's just how I feel about it. Stay tuned for the second half of my conversation with Clifton Duncan in the next and final episode of Season 7. And don't forget, you can give the gift of a While Never Make It subscription, whether it's to yourself or to someone else. Just go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, that about does it for me. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast, which is a production of WinMe Media. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.